inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad you're here. Today, we only have six questions, mainly because, and you'll see this right away, question number one has a lot of follow-ups. It's essentially like an entire podcast in and of itself. So without further ado, let's just jump right in. Question number one says, hi, Katie, this is a hard and weird question for me to write, but thank you for allowing us to ask these types of questions. Of course, we need to have safe spaces, especially online where we can talk about things because the important thing to consider when I read this question is that it got the most thumbs ups and it had a ton of comments on it. People saying that they felt exactly the same, having some follow-ups, like an additional piece. And I think what this tells us is that even when we think something's weird or strange, or we don't know what the hell is going on with us, that we're not alone with it, that other people in our community, other people in the world are going through it too. And I always feel like for every comment or every thumbs up, there's 10 other people that didn't feel brave enough to do that. So it's good to ask those questions if you feel like you're able to, okay? Now here, let's get into it. Sorry, got a little distracted there. It says, sometimes I experience what might be called body memories that suggest a sexual assault, though I have no memory of anything. It's like my body is trying to act out the assault happening so as to, quote unquote, get it out of me. And it wants to be soothed as well, for example, through masturbation. I began masturbating when I was quite young, like around nine years old. I had a fear, and I still do, of abduction, being bound, gagged, and the way that I cope with this was through imagining such scenarios that I would eventually escape from, and I would masturbate while doing this to soothe the fear of it, perhaps? Anyway, I'm aware that I've created some connection between bondage, fear, and pleasure here. My question then is, is it possible that the way I choose to self-soothe, or the way that I chose to self-soothe when I was young, has created such a response in my body that I'm questioning if there's abuse there. I have an absolute fear of sexual intimacy and I'm wondering if this is from a trauma that was inflicted upon me or if it's from my own choices. Thank you for all that you do. Okay, now there's a lot to unpack here and I do want people to know that from a young age and this will be different for each person, but I want you to know it's very normal as young kids to be curious about our bodies and the bodies of others. Though the whole kind of like, I show you mine, you show me yours kind of thing, or even um, touching ourselves down there when we're younger, whether it's masturbation or more just curiosity, is a normal part of development. However, when we're as young as nine years old and we have these kind of I don't know what I would call it, but almost like imagining these scenarios, right? We're kind of like replaying things and we masturbate as a way to soothe. It's it's very suspicious, okay? So know that masturbation as a whole, there's nothing wrong with it. When we're of a prepubescent age, like the age of nine, masturbating for pleasure, not as a more of a curiosity is, is kind of odd. Now it doesn't automatically make me think, oh yeah, there's abuse present, but what does is this kind of imagining those scenarios of being bound, gagged, and then, you know, while you do that, you masturbate while you, you know, while that's happening, and then imagine yourself getting out of it. And there's a huge part of me, just like with you, 
that believes that this could be connected to some kind of trauma. Now, I never like to jump to conclusions and be like, oh, this is definitely trauma related. But my my gut tells me that it, it there's a huge possibility that it is. Because sometimes when we don't remember something clearly, like, I don't know if you guys remember, but I did a video with my girlfriend, Alexa, Dr. Alexa Altman. She's a psychologist and trauma specialist. And she was telling me that a lot of times because of dissociation, we might not have any memory of a traumatic event. And I know that sucks because for a lot of us, we're like, well, I just want to know if it really happened. Like, I want to be able to remember it all so I can make sense of it and put it away. But those memories might not exist. The only way we might, you know, quote unquote, remember it is through body memories. And that sounds to me like what might be happening here. You might have memories as well. But my encouragement would be to work with a trauma therapist or a trauma-informed therapist. We don't just want anyone trying to assist you with this because I want to be very cautious about trying to force that narrative onto you. Because like I said, it's most likely trauma, but there's a possibility that that it's not and that it's associated with something else. And I want you to feel free to explore it at your own pace and with, with what, it, like, however it feels right. Does that make sense? Now, the question says, um, my question is, is it possible that the way I choose to self-soothe when I was young has created such a response in my body that I'm, if, that I'm questioning if there's abuse there? Now, I just, I have a hard time, and people can disagree with me here, but I have a hard time believing that nine-year-old or maybe even younger if we don't have full memory, younger you decided that masturbation would be the way you self-soothe. At that age, it it tends to be way more childlike than that. We have to, I think sometimes we forget. I would encourage, what I'd encourage you to do is to find a photo of yourself around nine, if you can, or if you have friends with children or other people in your family who have children around that age, I want you to spend some time with them, see them. Because Sometimes we as adults look back at child us and they're like, well, yeah, I mean, we could masturbate to self-soothe like an adult could do that, right? It makes sense. A teenager could do that. Yeah. But when we're prepubescent, when we have more curiosity rather than actual like sexual drive, it's a, it's a bizarre way to self-soothe and not bizarre that it's weird. It, bizarre that it, to me, it doesn't make sense developmentally. Again, remember, curiosity is fine. When we're younger, we're very curious about bodies, touching ourselves, wanting to see other people touch other people. We're just trying to make sense of things. Think of it as like learning. I know people are like, that sounds really gross or creepy. Children don't know that things are quote unquote wrong or that we don't do that. We're very curious. We're learning. Our bodies are new. Other bodies are new. We're very interested. It's just part of development. That's completely healthy. But when we're masturbating to self-soothe, especially when we have this intense fear, maybe irrational fear of abandonment, you know, being bound, gagged, like when we have these things that kind of don't make sense and we would say it's like an overreaction. Remember, I've told you like uh, extreme overreactions, being too sensitive, all these things are actually really helpful those words actually are like, oh, it's an indicator of something going on. If I have an irrational fear, where did that come from? Was I exposed? Because this is one possible uh, like reason. Was I exposed to kind of like traumatizing images of this on television? Maybe 
pornography, maybe a law and order type of show that was just too much for me, like a criminal minds, which I think can be sometimes a little much for children. Was I exposed to something like that at a young age? Is that what did it? Did something happen to me? Maybe I watched something happen to someone that I love or, you know, we need to feel free to be curious because this intense fear of that from such a young age, it just doesn't quite core, doesn't quite make sense to me. I don't know if it makes sense to you, but it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and the fact that the masturbation is soothing, I can, again, the my it, my therapist gut tells me there's more going on here rather than just natural and very healthy development. Sexual development is something that, unfortunately, in a lot of part, a lot of parts of the world, we kind of shame and blame and don't think it's okay to, like I said, to be curious about bodies, to want to touch ourselves, to. Like, I mean, little boys more so than girls tend to play with themselves a lot. And I don't really, um, there's nothing wrong with it. And I have a really tough time when people don't want them to do it and like, stop doing that. I feel like that creates this unhealthy relationship with ourselves and our bodies and our sexuality. And I want you to know that it's okay to be curious, but all of these connections makes me believe that something happened there, either to you, to someone you loved, or you were exposed to something on media that made you fear that kind of scenario because that's not something that a child would come up with so you had to get that information from somewhere else and so i think something happened work with a trauma therapist let's tease it out um and see what you come up with again it might be it might not be but my gut tells me something's there okay and the fact that you have a fear of sexual intimacy like an an absolute fear those are your words that seems kind of trauma response. Because if you guys don't know, one of the key indicators of PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder is avoiding anything that even remotely reminds you of what happened. So the fact that any sexual intimacy is like, uh, because if let's say that wasn't there, that wasn't present, I might just say, well, maybe, you know, your sex drive, maybe you were an earlier developer, right? Some people start their periods or start going through puberty at a much younger age. I might think that maybe you just have a higher sex drive and you're, you know, farther along. There's all sorts of reasons. I don't want anybody to feel shamed or blamed in this conversation, but you could have a higher sex drive and masturbation could be part of how you soothe because that's just, you know, that's something that you use to cope. Okay. I might, okay, that's fine. But this fear of intimacy, this um, extreme fear of abduction, of being bound and gagged and all of that stuff, that just, that tells me that it's, it's more PTSD like related. It sounds very trauma response. Um, I do not believe that from what I know based on your question that this is something that has been created through your own choices. So work with a therapist. Let's figure out where it's coming from. Let's do it from a remind remind yourself over and over. This is not a place to judge. We're not blaming or shaming. We just want to be curious. Where is this doesn't make any sense? Why is this happening? Where is this coming from? And let's see what we find out. Okay. There was a comment. There's a bunch of comments. So let's just start rolling through these. The first says, I can relate to all of this. It's as if I asked the question myself. See, you're not alone, right? How early of an age is masturbation a red flag for sexual abuse? I would, I really think masturbation is, is fine and healthy at a young age. It's when it's done to self-soothe. It's more about the purpose that it serves. Because when we're younger and we're prepubescent, it's more about curiosity, as we get older and we get to kind of that puberty age, that's where it becomes, I would say, like a normal part of life. 
I'm not saying everybody has to masturbate. I know tons of Christians and other religions have this like purity culture kind of toxic sexuality or toxic view of sexuality rather. And so people are like, don't masturbate, you know. I remember, um, I don't know if it was Sean or one other friend of ours, but they were raised Catholic and they were saying that they uh, they were told if they masturbate, they'll go blind. And I was like, sweet mother of God. So anyways, masturbation, I believe early is is fine, but when it's done to soothe. So I wouldn't even put an age that it's a red flag. I would say that it's more about if we're doing it to self-soothe and it's something that feels kind of more compulsory. And if it's and again, that's more, that's pre-puberty. So age nine would be something that I would be like, hmm, I wouldn't necessarily say, yes, that's sexual abuse, but I'd say that's interesting. I would want to know more. Again, we have to be curious, not judgmental, because again, we're very curious creatures. We're trying to learn about our bodies and the bodies of others, and there's nothing wrong with touching ourselves. It's just, I get suspicious when it's pre-puberty and when it's done as a way to self-soothe, and it could be done in excess, meaning it's like a constant thing, or it's the only way we know how to self-soothe, almost like someone would suck their thumb. We have to be curious about this. So I think that those are kind of, I know that's not a direct answer because there's not just like this age, there's like ranges. And you can look up like development and what's a, like a normal kind of process. And it's a huge variant, right? Like some people do start going through puberty as early as 10 or 11, some even maybe earlier, right? I had some girlfriends of mine growing up who were so early that their doctor put them on something to like stop it, to slow it. Uh, and I forget, I think it was like nine or 10. So that could mean that you're masturbating earlier. So I don't want you automatically to think masturbation at a young age is a bad thing, but I want you to know that when we're doing something to self-soothe and that something is sexually related and we're too young to really understand that, we need to be curious about it and figure out where that's coming from and why did we come up with this as a way to self-soothe? Did, you know, did someone show it to us or is it just our natural development? Working with a trauma-informed therapist will help you kind of walk through this, doing timelines of our life, uh, looking at photos of ourselves at a younger age, considering, you know, um, maybe some other responses that could be tied to it or not and teasing it out. Again, no judgment to each their own. Everyone develops at a different age. I don't want anybody to feel like their experience is necessarily like, oh, masturbation, young age, trauma. No, a lot of it has to do with our development and us just being curious. But again, it could be an indicator of something else. As an add-on, here's another one. Katie, beginning last year, you answered my question on the connection of self-harm and masturbation. I did. And a possible connection to childhood sexual abuse, which cannot be remembered. In your answer, you mentioned that a person might be overwhelmed and masturbate as a way to cope and afterwards self-harms. As the person might dissociate due to masturbation as sex and sexual arousal might function as a trigger, correct? But what if a person self-harms during masturbation? Like, through rough penetration or things like that. I won't get into too much detail, which can lead to bleeding and, you know, harm and stuff like that. Does it make a difference if the person self-harms after or during masturbation? You mentioned that this behavior, self-harm after mas masturbation, is typically seen in childhood sexual abuse survivors, but it can maybe also be seen in survivors of other forms of abuse. Yes. What would you say if self-harm is done during masturbation by painful penetration? Could this maybe also be seen in people with a history in, let's say, emotional abuse and neglect? Yes. Um, I think any kind of like rough form of 
like self-harm during masturbation, I would put it almost the same as self-harming after or before, you know, it's kind of part of this ritual. Uh, Self-injury in in general, you guys could disagree, but in my practice with my patients, and even for many of you I've talked to online over the years, rituals are very key to a lot of our unhealthy behaviors. Even masturbation as a result of childhood sexual abuse, self-injury, eating disorder behavior, even suicidal ideation and some kind of like routine or acting out of things we can do we have a lot of these like routines around our what i'd call maladaptive behavior and the reason being is that routines are very soothing to our nervous system and to our brain as a whole and so having this routine can help us feel a little bit better i know you're like katie that's so weird our brain and body is different it's interesting right it's trying to find a way to cope and when it comes to having painful or rough masturbation, so so much to the point that you are bleeding, I have a lot of questions around your thoughts and your behaviors with regard to this. Like, do you enjoy rough sex? Is that the way that you get the most aroused? Has this always been the way that you have enjoyed sex? Do you Can you clearly tie it to childhood sexual abuse? Because you said that it's not something we remember. So again, we don't want to jump conclusions. We want to be very curious about it and not judgmental. But like I said earlier, I'm always very suspicious when we have what I would call like a normal behavior masturbation, right? Paired with something that I would call like a maladaptive coping skill. And when they're paired together or very closely together, in this case, at the same time, that my suspicion, like my interest is peaked. And I think there is a high likelihood that it ties to childhood sexual abuse. And I think when you're saying emotional abuse or neglect, it could be a way that we not only feel, because if you think about, I know this might be too much for people, but, and I hope this isn't too triggering, but I hope, um, or let's think about masturbation is something that is a pleasurable activity. Okay, it's something people do to feel good. It is something that releases chemically into our bodies when we talk about like, you know, neurotransmitters, things like serotonin and dopamine and all the feel good norepinephrine, I think. Um, And there's probably a few others that I'm forgetting, but our body releases essentially all the things that almost trigger like our reward center on our brain, the pleasure center. We're like, ooh, I want more of that, right? If we were emotionally abused and neglected, that pleasure center, that reward center, us feeling good because of anything is is probably pretty limited. And we can feel pretty bad about ourselves as a result. Our, you know, self-confidence and self-esteem can be pretty low. Therefore, we might do something that people would consider pleasurable, masturbation, but harm ourselves during the act as a way of almost like re-harming ourselves with the emotional abuse. Because, and I know people are probably thinking, why would I re-injure myself with the same thing? The thing that we have to remember is that our brains want to work through past traumas, upsets, et cetera. They just don't really know how else to do it. So they do it again, hoping for a different outcome. Meaning that if you were able to masturbate, and not injure yourself, and instead actually show yourself love, maybe journal about what came up for you, that would be a different outcome. And that would give our brain a little bit of what it's wanting, which is wanting just to process the pain that it felt when really all it wanted was comfort, you know, to feel good, to be soothed. We're trying with all that we know. Masturbation, 
right? Maybe that's just the only way we've sued, maybe due to sexual abuse, maybe because of our higher sex drive, maybe because that's just how we are, right? Everybody's wired differently. Again, I don't want any shame or blame on people who feel like they maybe masturbate more than someone else. This isn't a, you know, we don't need to compare things to each other. But the fact that this is paired with sexual, like self-harm, so we have like masturbation and self-harm happening simultaneously, I'm very suspicious of some abuse in some what shape or another. And I think it definitely could come from emotional abuse or neglect because again, we're trying to get that that soothing, that feel good and masturbation's wired to make us feel that way. And then the harm comes in because that's the only way we've ever felt it. Does that make sense? I hope so. Okay, another add-on. It says, hi, and also how early of an age is painful masturbation as a way of self-harm, a sign of sexual abuse? Oh, how early of an age. I honestly think any age at all, painful masturbation is something we should be curious about. I know some adults enjoy, or even teenagers, right? So anybody who's sexually active or is is puberty and on. Some people enjoy, you know, uh, S&M or they, you know, rough sex or whatever you want to call it. People can enjoy some of those behaviors and that, that kind of thrill and the pain meets pleasure can be very intriguing to a lot of people. That's not necessarily an indication of something, some past trauma. I do think a lot of it plays like, not that we need to get into this, but when people enjoy that type of sex, it usually has something to do with how they navigate the world. Um, Like someone who's always in control would rather not be in control when it comes to sex or someone who you know, is really tough in life, wants someone to be very tough on them during sex or wants to be the, that person during sex. You know, it, it kind of plays out in one way or another in our sex life. So when it comes to saying like how early of an age, I think painful masturbation should always be considered and looked into to ensure that it's not an um, what I call a maladaptive coping skill, meaning something that's not healthy for us because it's not in and of itself painful masturbation, not a bad thing as long as we're not doing damage where we need to go to the doctor or the hospital, things like that, right? But overall, there's nothing really wrong with it at face value, but we do, we should consider, I think it's really important for all of us to consider how our sex life relates to how we're doing psychologically. You know, if we do it as a means of punishment, we should be curious about that. What is it about the painful masturbation that makes you feel better? How often are you doing it? When did it start? Those are all, you know, is it a relationship? Is it a situation? Something that we should just just take a minute and think about. And I would say when we're talking early of age, again, I have to go back to like pre-puberty, more curiosity, but done as a way to soothe is, is very suspicious. Again, worth looking into. And painful in particular, I feel like that to me, if we're pre-puberty, is a huge red flag. And that's because, remember, going back to like natural curiosity, natural enjoyment of our bodies. When we're younger, I could, that totally makes sense developmentally. But to harm ourselves is suspicious. I think you all would kind of agree, right? So that's where I would, it'd be like a red flag I'd want to really look into. Okay. Following on, another one, following on from fear of sexual intimacy. How might I work through having a fear that if a guy asks me what I'm doing right now via text or comments on my appearance in a good way, that he is clearly wanting to have sex with me? 
As a survivor of childhood sexual abuse, I immediately fear for my safety and believe that guys are just after me for my body um, and for their own pleasure. I know that this isn't always the case, but I don't know how to work through it. Thank you, Katie. Of course. Now, what's happened here, and sometimes it just helps to kind of understand why our brain is doing what it's doing. Because we survived childhood sexual abuse, our brain tells us that men, it seems in particular in your case, only want one thing. Because in our childhood sexual abuse past, that's what happened. No one came, no man was in our life, maybe, or an important man in our life to just support us and be there for us and make sure that we were okay. They were harming us. They were sexually abusing us. Therefore, our brain associates men with sexual abuse. None are safe. Remember how I've talked about that our nervous system is wired to seek out threat? It does that in order to keep us safe, right? So if my nervous system's looking out into the world and it's like, oh, oh, that person looks kind of creepy and suspicious. They remind me of someone who used to abuse me. I'm going to stay away from anybody who looks like that. That is a dark alleyway. I'm not going to walk down that, right? Our brain is doing that to keep us safe, to protect us. However, when we have trauma, it almost goes into like high alert, like overactive. And it, like I said, that guy that looks kind of like someone who harmed us, yours is like all men. We just make these big generalizations, these big sweeping things are off limits, right? You could say it's like comparable to, to me saying, I was assaulted in an alleyway. I will never walk down an alleyway ever again, right? And it does that to protect us. Makes sense. Good job, brain and body. Thanks for keeping me alive. However, that starts to make our world really small, right? As we avoid men who maybe look like the person who harmed us and abused us when we were younger, then it's men, all men who have brown hair because he had brown hair. I'm just making things up. Or it's all men who are older than us, right? And we start, it starts getting bigger and bigger. Then it's all men. So our world starts to get smaller. It's almost like, it's the reason that a lot of my patients who have trauma have a tough time being out in public because if people are behind them in line, they're triggered. If a man is wearing a certain cologne, we're triggered. Like I had a patient get in an elevator once and it like sent her through the roof and we couldn't figure out why. And it was because that man was wearing the cologne that her abuser used to wear. So there can be a lot of triggers and the best way to push back against this. And I know this is a shitty, shitty answer, but this is just how our brain works is we have to slowly expose ourselves in safe ways to the triggering thing. So in your case, men, guys, in a safe way where we can use some tools to calm us down, we have to do what is called exposure therapy. And prolonged exposures can be done to help us with trauma. And that's where we kind of hold in that scary space, that exposed space to the thing that's triggering for a longer period but we have to have tools to calm ourselves down. That's the most important thing. I have videos about exposure therapy. If you want me to walk, you know, I walk you through it step by step, but that's really the best way. I even talk about it in my book, Traumatized, how the best way to to push back against this and to, to broaden our world again is to do this work. Now, because I know you're like, I don't want to engage with any guys. A lot of the early steps, the first couple things are just imagining, you know, talking about it. How would we respond? If a guy says, what are you doing right now? And you just say nothing watching TV, you know, what are we worried is going to happen? You know, we have to play things out and we can do some role play with our therapist. We can do some visualizations and things like that first before we engage actually with the outside world. Again, we have to make sure we have those really good tools to calm our system down. Okay. And slowly but surely our world will broaden and we won't be so reactive to men in general. Yes, there's going to be times when all they want, you know, 
is sex and that's all they're going to try to get from us. But for the most part, you know, there's going to be some good guys out there too that actually just want to get to know you to see if there's any chemistry, to see if things can progress in that way. And that's all in due time over the course of a relationship, okay? Another add-on, like I told you guys, this one's long. There's so many. It says, I also experience body memories in triggering situations. It often feels like sexual arousal and I have to masturbate in order to get it out. Sometimes it's related to self-harm, feeling the increasing pain or even the anticipation of the coming pain shortly before I harm myself. This leads to kind of a sexual arousal and I started masturbating at the age of 12, most often in the shower and the goal wasn't pleasure. I continued after the orgasm in order to feel the pain. Interesting. I'm 33 now and it's still a coping strategy, especially for self-disgust. I think of myself as dirty and feel the need to get rid of the dirt or better the emotions by showering and washing myself out. Sometimes this urge is triggered just by showering itself and filling the water on certain areas of my body. There often are images or little clips of sexual abuse in my mind. Afterwards, I feel so ashamed and again, disgusted. How can I find out if it's just my imagination and totally made up or if these images are real memories? It's so confusing and I find it hard to trust myself. And how can I overcome this urge? For some context, I'm diagnosed with BPD, complex PTSD, and anorexia, but I don't want to believe or acknowledge that it's due to childhood sexual abuse. It feels a lot easier to convince myself that I totally made it up. It sounds a lot like childhood sexual abuse, especially just with what you told me in the context. What I really want to acknowledge here is that it's hard to, to agree or acknowledge that what happened to us was abuse. And the reason for this is because if we admit that that happened, it can mean a lot of things, right? Then we have all of these things that we believe are tied to this definition or this thing happening to us. And that can lead us down a path we don't feel ready to go down. Not to mention that we often have told ourselves, especially when we're growing up, if this happened in childhood, that the abuse was our fault. That shame, that blame, that guilt, that embarrassment, like you said, the feeling dirty, We took that on ourselves, even though we weren't of the age to be able to make those types of decisions. Things happened to us that we didn't, that shouldn't have, and we didn't feel like we had the wherewithal or the ability or even the understanding to push back or to say no. And that that inner child work is going to be really healing for you. I would encourage you to work on that in therapy. I even have a workshop I did. We filmed it and it's up on the website that you can purchase and access it. There's tons of worksheets and information. It's a two-part, two-hour-a-piece workshop. I'd encourage you to check that out if you're looking for some inner child work. Um, Also, if you're just looking for books and ways to work on it, in my Amazon shop, amazon.com forward slash shop forward slash Katie Morton. I have some of those in there too. But I want you to know it's very normal to, to kind of think it's easier if we just made it up. Because admitting that something like that happened to us is hard, uncomfortable, shame-filled. And that's why it's really important that you do this work with a therapist. Because this kind of like, and I'd assume you're working with someone because of the diagnoses that you told me, like having those diagnoses, you had to get them somewhere, right? Talk to them about this. Tell them this is happening. If you can, find a way to slowly let them into this. I know, again, there's so much shame and blame surrounding this, but what you're going through, I believe, based on what you've told me, sounds very much trauma and abuse connected, especially the fact that it's not really about feeling pleasure. It's about the pain. 
and then having these like clips that fly through your brain when you're in the shower. I wonder what, like, there's a huge part of me that's like, what happened in the shower when you were younger? Is that where the abuse happened? Maybe. Um, I don't know though. We'd have to be curious together. It might help to put the, you know, like a trauma timeline together. Since you have complex PTSD, are there other traumas that are easier for you to acknowledge? Maybe we start there and start building it out. Um, Yeah, those are my thoughts. Hang in there. It does get better. I know it's hard to admit that what happened to us was sexual abuse. Our brain wants to push it away because it helps us move forward, helps us survive. But the reason these flashes are coming back is because your your brain's like, hey, I think we should probably work through this, right? It's affecting us and we should process it. So give yourself the opportunity to and know that it's okay to take your time in sharing this with a therapist. Like I said, I know there's a lot of shame, blame, embarrassment associated with it, but maybe start journaling about it. Start talking a little bit to your therapist about the fact that you think there might have been something that happened. You've been experiencing some weird symptoms. I'm not ready to talk about them yet. You know, we can start out like that. That's totally okay. Okay. A couple more. Another person says, adding on, as a very young teen, I would masturbate to fantasies of being sexually assaulted. I don't think I had any sexual abuse, maybe mild physical or emotional mistreatment at most. However, I'm very scared and disgusted by any sexual interest or libido. And I think that's also part of why I have anorexia. It can be. I've had lots of patients with anorexia struggle with sexuality as well. I'm 24 now and have never been in love or had a partner or sex. I'm scared of almost all men. Hmm. I'm suspicious of this, Um, meaning that I'm not saying there was necessarily sexual abuse, but the fact that you said maybe mild physical or emotional mistreatment something that we always try to do is downplay just like the person before said it's harder hard for me to convince myself that I didn't make this up that this really happened to me right I've had a ton of patients and people in our community who downplay what I would call big t or little t trauma to like pretend that it wasn't that bad you know I mean so what I had a viewer this is years ago who grew up as a navy brat so they moved around a lot and she was like it's not that bad I mean, we moved, you know, like 12 times in four years, but like, that was fine. Not a big deal. I'm like, not a big deal. That was like all through like middle school, high school. That's a really tough time to like try to make new friends and be moving around. That's a trauma. It's overwhelming. We, you know, and I think maybe what happened to you was a trauma and we're downplaying it, especially because we're having this kind of what I would call, you know, it. It feels based on what you're saying, an ego dystonic, meaning we don't like the way it feels, an ego dystonic reaction or response to sexual interest, dating, being in love, having a partner. Now, it is okay to be curious about this. I'm not saying everybody has to be in love and have to want to have sex. There are people who are asexual or aromantic. It can happen. But I want you to dig into it and be curious before we jump to any conclusions, right? We don't want to jump to the conclusion that we're asexual, aromantic. We don't want to jump to the conclusion that we've had abuse in our past, or, you know, we don't want to jump to any conclusions. We want to allow ourselves the time to kind of dig inside and figure out what is going on, right? Because the as a very young teen masturbating to fantasies of being sexually assaulted, the masturbation part doesn't, that's okay. You're a young teen. That's fine being sexually assaulted, being a fantasy, it could be a kink. Again, not necessarily a bad thing. 
but a little, again, a little mini red flag. We want to dig in, want to check it out just to be sure. Then the physical and emotional mistreatment, I'd want to know more about that. What does that look like? What does mild physical or emotional mistreatment look like? And then being scared and disgusted by sexual interest. Has that always been the case? You know, where did this come from? When did it start? Let's, let's dig in, you know, and being scared of almost all men. To me, that's the biggest red flag of all, because again, being a sexual, a romantic, or just not being interested in a relationship doesn't mean we're scared of, of a certain gender, right? It doesn't mean that all of a sudden I'm like, I don't like men or I don't like women. I'm scared of them. That doesn't, that to me is like something's off there. So let's dig in. Again, no judgments. Don't have to jump to any conclusions. Just allow yourself to kind of learn. Too often, I think we feel rushed to figure it out. And there's a lot of healing and a lot of learning in that process, in that, let me dig in, figure it out, taking that time. That's where I think a lot of the actual work in therapy is, okay? Final add-on. says, I don't know if this is related, but what's the point of knowing if it's abuse or not? I kind of relate to the question, but would always think, what's the point of digging into abuse? Now we have the result. Why would we ever care about the reasons? It's like we're just trying to validate our actions, which is pathetic. I always think about this, whatever the topic I'm dealing with was. I hope I hope you got what I mean. Totally. We have a lot of self-judgment and shame. Um, okay. The point of knowing if it's abuse or not can help people understand some some people not all need to know the the reason why i would argue we need to know what happened so that we can work through it because if you haven't been following me for very long you might not know that i always talk about the root of the root right i think of treatment and therapy like a plant right or a tree now if we don't if we don't want this tree in our life, let's in the the tree, I like to represent like the flowers or the leaves on it are like the symptoms, right? So we're, we have painful masturbation. We have hating all men, uh, fear of intimacy. We have all these symptoms, blah, 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 blah. And, and they, we don't like them. Okay. They're uncomfortable. They're ego dystonic. Oh, feels bad. I hate it. Okay. Well, I can cut off the leaves. Then just grows right back. Right. I mean, I can cut off branches. Boop things are going to grow back. If we don't take it to the root and figure out where it's coming from, meaning if we don't understand that what happened to us was abuse and process through what we sustained as a child or as a, a teen or adult or whatever, whenever the abuse happened, if we don't take the time to really figure it out and pull out that root, it's just going to keep messing with our life over and over and over. Sure, it might kind of look a little different. Like I have this really invasive fucking weed in the front of my house and I keep trying to pull it out and it keeps coming back in different areas, right? So that's like what can happen when we don't dig at the root. It'll come up, oh, maybe we start drinking a little too much. We have struggles with alcoholism. Maybe we have really unhealthy sexual relationships, very risky, maybe dangerous, painful, harmful, send us to the doctor, the ER. Maybe we, you know, keep everybody out and we isolate. Maybe we have such bad self-esteem and such bad uh, confidence that it affects us in our career or in our life and we end up not being able to afford things. You know, I mean, I, I'm, 
I know that's not going to affect everybody in that way. I'm just giving some examples of how it can show itself. Eating disorder behavior, self-injury, depression, anxiety, suicidal thoughts. That's why it's important for us to get to that root. Now, I will let you know that we don't have to remember everything and dig in on every memory in order to process it through or to, to help us work it through our nervous system, right? Through somatic therapy or figuring out what parts of ourselves are, you know, involved in these things. You do parts work, schema therapy, we can do some anything. That's why it's important. And it's not validating your actions because like you're saying, which is pathetic, there's a lot of judgment you have right there, which I find interesting that that maybe you think your actions are pathetic. And I'm curious if there's some emotional abuse in your childhood, you know, because what would it mean for someone to need validation? I'm curious why that's so triggering because validation is something we all need. It's a basic human need to feel seen, heard, and understood. Yes, I get you. You have every right to feel that way, or I understand why you think that way. We validated. We need that. We're, we're creatures made for connection. And so if someone else can reach out and say, I see you, I hear you, what you're going through, I understand. That's important. And so I think it's all just part of the healing. That's why. We don't have to remember everything. We don't have to dig into every small detail, but that's why it's important for us to know what happened and kind of why. The why is a huge, not only for the healing and the realization, but also so that it doesn't creep back up in other ways. Because once we kind of understand why we did, okay, let's say I have an eating disorder. I understand I have an eating disorder because I, uh, my abuser, maybe I was sexually abused, my abuser told me that he loved how squishy I was as a kid. So I wanted to be bony and skinny so he would never hurt me again, right? It was almost protective, almost like fawning in a way. If I understand that, then when I apologize for being in an, I don't know, standing somewhere in a grocery store when someone is getting around me, I apologize for taking up space. I understand that it's it's because that's some that's coming from that same spot of like, me wanting to disappear, me wanting to not. Do you know what I mean? I know that sounds really crazy, but it's like if we want to disappear and we want someone not to harm us again and we're doing anything to make ourselves unattractive, then let's say I'm out on a date and someone says, oh, I really like you know how soft you are or something. Oh, could shoot me through back into eating disorder behavior or me wanting to disappear, me apologizing for taking up space. There's a ton of ways it could reveal itself. And that's why we, that's why the why is so important. Does that make sense? I hope so. But yeah, it's, that's why it's important for us to know so that we can pull out that root so that it doesn't infect and come up in other ways. Okay, moving on to question number two. I told you that one was, there was a lot. Question number two says, Katie, I've been seeing my therapist for almost a year now, and I still find it really difficult to fully trust her. I'm aware that she has done nothing but show me reasons that I can and should trust her. She has the patience of a saint with me. As an avoidant type person, I would usually have walked away from this months ago, yet I'm still going and have never missed a session. Yay. So part of me knows that in some way, I'm not avoiding like I used to, which is good. But I don't understand why I can't just put my trust in her. It's like I want to do it, but it's physically impossible. I know it's not her fault in any way. In fact, she was the perfect choice for me. 
I never feel judged by her or rushed to get to any conclusions. It's so confusing and frustrating. I know in some ways I'm making improvements and I even let myself show emotion in session for the first time. Yay. I don't want to be this way anymore. I feel like I just keep hitting a wall because I can't shift these trust issues. I'm just starting to feel like I can never be fixed and will always live a life being unable to trust anyone. You're not giving yourself credit. When I read this, I was like, oh my God, you're making such huge strides. You would have normally walked away months ago. You stuck with it. You never feel judged for her, judged by her or rushed, right? You've made improvements. You're showing some emotion. You're doing it. This is you doing it. The one thing that I always encourage people to do when it comes to therapy, we have to stop judging our progress on some kind of timeline that we have decided is when we should be fixed or when something should be getting better. Everybody's different. And every, I'd even speak personally, every issue that I go to therapy for is different. Some issues can be resolved in like six or eight sessions. Usually that's just when I'm like, like right now, I'm trying to find a good therapist. And I'm like, I have a few that are, eh, but not, you know, so it's like, I would just want someone to talk with because things get stressful. And sometimes I need another person's advice. I need their insight. I want their, you know, like as much as I can unbiased opinion. That's not really an issue. It's more just like I need the check-in, right? I feel overwhelmed with work sometimes. I need someone to talk to about it. But then there's bigger issues. Things like me working on people pleasing and my communication, like not being passive aggressive. Those things took like twice a week for like years for me to figure out where the fuck it was coming from and why I was still doing it and how I would stop and all that stuff. So know that not only is each person going to be different in their ability to open up and to show emotion and to participate and to let someone in to trust, but also every issue in and of itself can take a different amount of time. So know that you have full reign to take your time with this. You're already doing great. I'm proud of you. I know you're probably not seeing the progress because you're measuring it against someone else's, I guess, you know, progress measurer stick. I don't know. We don't need to measure against someone else. How are you doing compared to you? Sounds like you're doing pretty good. You're doing better than you've ever done before. So hang in there. It'll get better. It already is. I would let your therapist know that sometimes you feel a little frustrated and like you're not making enough progress and say, I might need you every two or three months to just remind me of things that I've done because we lose sight and work therapy works hard. And sometimes we forget how far we've come. So maybe they need to remind you. Okay. There's a comment on this says, as an add-on, this touches on my question in the past few weeks. How do I learn to trust my therapist after a number of breaches of trust with past therapists and mental health professionals? I've had my confidentiality broken. A therapist just left their position and a therapist ended our year-long therapy with an email and no final session. No referrals, no reasoning for the end, just we're finished. Luckily, I found someone new, but every time I think of taking a risk and trusting her, I think she'll hurt me too. What can I do? First of all, I'm sorry that you've encountered such shitty mental health professionals. And unfortunately, not everyone's good at their jobs, and I'm sorry. But the one that didn't give you referrals and just left, you could file a, like, if you wanted to file a complaint, you could. Because that's technically called uh, patient abandonment, and it's against, it's ethically not good. Okay, but what do we do? 
Now, number one is allow yourself to process those losses with your current therapist. I don't know if that feels safe or not, but I think that's a great that's a great way to go about it is to talk with your current one about the, the shit that went on so that you feel okay moving through it and hopefully in that process, start to slowly trust your current. Now, I think it's also okay, and I've had many patients ask me this over the years. Also, I deal a lot with BPD, so attachment, abandonment, yada, yada, yada. But they will always say like, well, how will I know if you're going to leave? And she should tell you what her protocol is. How will I know if we're going to end sessions? Can you give me like a two-month, you know, talk about it. Let's talk about, I know it seems weird to talk about the end with the, when you're at the beginning, but if that's a big sticking point and a big fear of yours, then we need to remove that fear by knowing more about it. The best way I feel to manage a, a fear, irrational or not, is to have more information, right? Because often we just worry, 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 worry about it and don't change anything and don't know anything about it. So it just feels very unknown and very scary. But if we dig in and we learn more, then it hopefully isn't so scary. So talk to them about it, process through, and then give yourself time. It's okay to take your time with trust. It's okay to to not feel like you can share right away, little by little. Give your give yourself a break. You know, we don't we aren't expected to jump right back in, especially if you've been wounded in the past. You're doing great. Let's just start opening up about our past experience with therapists. And let's ask more information about how they would potentially end treatment. And, you you know, just tell them I've had some shitty experiences. And what are my rights of confidentiality? Because I've had that broken too. You know, and those, you can also report that. That's illegal, actually. They could get their, they could take their license. So you do have some rights here, but take your time. And then another random thing that I've, I've done with patients in the past is it can help in a journal kind of homework format for you to write down the ways that your therapist is different than the therapist that you saw in the past. What kind of things have you already noticed that are different? Let's look for those and let's focus in on that, okay? With that, let's move on to question number three. Question number three says, Katie, how do you stay motivated when applying for jobs and getting rejection after rejection? I can't take it anymore. And someone else said, how do you keep writing and submitting when you keep getting rejected? It's not even that I question I'm a good enough writer. I'm pretty sure I am, but middle grade fiction's a rough niche in writing and that's what I write. So how do we keep motivated when we keep getting rejected? When it comes to jobs, it can really help to remember why you wanted a new job or why you want this job, right? If you're applying for a specific type of position, why that one? Let's reflect on some of our career goals, right? I got rejected from so many internships just trying to get some experience to become a therapist. I want to say like five or six, maybe even more, you guys. I don't even remember. I kind of lost count. But they had no more openings. Oh, that position's been filled. Oh, it's just not the right fit right now. All sorts of answers. But I wanted to do what I want to do. And sometimes it helps to reflect on that. Take some time. Consider why you're so interested in this in the first place. And then each rejection that we receive some, I mean, not everyone, but most of them, we can learn from them. So what was there something like, let's say uh, every time I got rejected, they were telling me that I didn't have this certain type of training. Can I look into that? Is that something that I could maybe start to do? Or is it, uh, is there something that I should, another class I should take or another job? Maybe 
I know it kind of sucks, but sometimes we have to take like a pay cut at first to get that experience. So then we can jump into where we want to be. Is there anything we can learn from our rejections? That kind of helps. And then also lean on your people, your support system, reach out, talk to them, complain. It's okay to complain sometimes. Things can be shitty. Getting rejected is hard. Allow yourself that opportunity. I also think it's really key to have other people within kind of your sphere to talk to about it because they understand and they know, you know, and they can maybe even help. Sometimes I honestly think getting jobs is easiest when you have an in with someone in the same kind of field. So maybe reach out to those people too. And finally, know that it's okay to take a break from this every so often. I know you're like, Katie, I have to pay my bills. Sometimes I think if we are wanting like a dream type of job, it's okay to take a good job for now. Like I told Sean, I was like, hey, this is back in the day when we first started YouTube and I quit my full-time job. I was like, if YouTube just isn't enough to support us and what we do online doesn't work, I'm not opposed to like working at Starbucks for a while till we sort it or opening a full-time private practice, which I've never done. I've only done like two, three days a week. You know, there. what would you do? How could you maybe support yourself while you continue searching for the job you really want? Um, because sometimes we have to take breaks from it. It can be exhausting to keep interviewing and putting shit out there and filling out those forms and answering their questions. Blah, 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 blah. Sometimes we just need to take a break. So maybe, you know, take this week off or take a couple of days off from it. So you don't feel like rejected every single day. That's hard. And then it might even feel good to spend some time doing something that you're good at. That building mastery part of DBT where like, okay, let's say, I'm good at playing guitar. Let's spend some time doing that. If we're really good at connecting with people, let's get out and see somebody, you know, spend some time doing something that you love that you're good at so that you remember and you're reminded how talented you are. Don't let them beat you up just because you didn't get that position. Sometimes they just, they either don't see your talent and they're missing out or they happen to already fill it and that sucks. You know, we've all been there. Okay. But hang in there. Moving on to question number four. It says, hi, Katie. My question is, how do you find the emotional balance when you truly love your parents, are thankful for everything they've done for you, but at the same time, you have to deal with the consequences of their emotional neglect and abuse? How do you navigate the overwhelming mixed feelings of they didn't mean to, or they did the best they could, and the deep pain and PTSD symptoms caused by them? I honestly, and I know I've said this before probably, but I hate the term they did the best they could because their best could have fucking sucked. And I think it's hard work what you're doing, but here's how I encourage people to navigate it. Sometimes it helps to write letters that we don't send or even just journal about what we had hoped from our parents. We often don't take time to think about that like the dream of what it would be. Or maybe we had other friends that we grew up with were like, man, I wish I had a dad like that or a mom like that. Or I wish my parents were that supportive. What did that look like? And then what were they able to give you? And then grieve that difference. It's okay to be angry. You might have a period of time where you don't want to be in close of contact with them because you're working through it. That's fair. They weren't there for you. You're trying to cope. Sometimes we need a little time to work it through, to try to process it on our own. What happened still happened. You have every right to experience a totally mixed bag of emotions, feeling hatred and feeling love, feeling anger, and then feeling grateful. 
Because the thing about emotional neglect and abuse is that it often means that they, they were like good on paper parents, right? Like we had a house and I had food and they took me to school and I went to a good school and I had clothes. I had everything I wanted. No, it, you had those things. Those are just things. What we really need, what children really need is emotional support and love and validation and acceptance. We didn't get that. That fucking sucks. And so I think my best advice is to start journaling, start writing letters you don't send, because what I want you to have is an outlet for all of the different various emotions that can come up during this. It's not so cut and dried. You know, it's not always so, not that anything's really simple, but it's not always, oh, I hate my parents. I don't want to see them anymore. It's way more complicated than that, especially with family. So I also would really strongly encourage you to stop giving them an out in your own brain. Allow your brain to be just about you. We don't need to say, oh, they didn't mean to. Oh, they're doing the best they can. Mm -mm. It doesn't matter. You still feel the way you feel. Every time that comes up, just imagine me saying that to you. I don't really care. It's still okay for you to feel the way you feel because by saying that they did the best they could, they didn't mean to, we're invalidating ourselves. It's kind of part of that like trauma response, that shame, that blame, that guilt, right? We take it on ourselves. Oh, they didn't mean to. It's, you know, it wasn't that bad. They did the best they could. You know, they didn't know any better. Their parents were just as bad. What? So then I don't get a right to feel bad or to struggle with this? No, you have every right. So pay attention to those thoughts. Let's challenge them a little bit. And let's start writing out about how we're feeling, what's coming up for us. You know, give it give it the space it deserves. Now, there was a comment that says, I don't know if this is similar, but what about what about if they say they were acting out of love for you? Oh, manipulation. Is your parent a narcissist? My parents did deeply hurtful things that they'll say they were doing it to help me. They also turn the situation around on me when I bring them up saying I that I hurt them more than they ever hurt me. Even though I was only 12 and against two adults working together, I tend to blame myself because I feel like I should be appreciative of all the positive things they do. Oh, that, that gaslighting, man. That manipulation is rough. I'm so sorry that you're going through that. I want you to know that that's not true and then that's manipulation. And what you're going to want to work on is healing from this narcissistic abuse, which is going to happen almost like what I said with the person before, but your focus is going to have to be more on the thoughts that you have because of this manipulation that they're doing. Meaning, I want you to focus in on how you talk to yourself about the abuse, and I want you to start working on bridge statements. So when you say, I'm sure when even when you think like, oh, that really hurt me, and that was like deeply painful, I would, I would assume, and I don't, I don't know, you let me know. But I would assume we have this like automatic thought where we're like, oh, it wasn't really that bad. You're making it more than it was or blah, 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 blah. And I want you to argue back. I don't want you letting that live. I want you to then say it is possible or I'm open to the fact that that hurt me. And that's not a way of showing love, you know, or we might have to check our facts. If that doesn't work, if we aren't able to bridge statement it because you're like, well, I don't believe what they say, but it like fucks with my head then I want you to check your facts. So as they say something like, I did it out of love for you, be like, you know, in your head or to them, I'm curious what love looks like for you. Is that how you love on people? It's a very interesting way of showing love, right? And so it might behoove you in journaling or in your own personal work to like jot down what you think love looks like, what it feels like, all that stuff. 
because essentially this gaslighting, this manipulation, this like narcissistic abuse can kind of twist our realities. And that's the goal. That's what they're hoping to do is to get us so confused we don't trust our own selves. And I'm here to tell you, I want you to slowly start trying to put more trust back into yourself through therapy, fact checking, and bridge statements. And I know this kind of sucks, but I I think for a period of time, I want you to kind of minimize your contact with them so that we can get things kind of settled. If we spend too much time with someone that's always manipulating us, it's going to be really hard for us to undo that damage all the time. And it doesn't mean we can't see them at all, but I would just lessen it a little bit. So maybe it's only once a week or every other week or whatever feels right for you. But talk with your therapist about that to find a sweet spot because it can be too much to have them manipulate us, us stop trying to stop. And then, you know, it's a total mind fuck. Okay, another comment says, I totally relate. What if I can't accept or let them love me? I do love them and try to show that, but when the love and support, but when the love and support are coming from them to me uh, here, I can't handle it. I feel like there's a huge wall that's hard to break between us, yet they are kind and trying to do everything for us. I guess I'd be curious about why you think that is. It seems protective. Has There's usually a reason we're protecting ourselves. So any idea why this defense mechanism is coming up? Has it always been that way? What would it mean if they showed you love? What would it mean if you accepted love? Does then it feel like manipulative? What are you worried would happen? Let's think this out. Let, answer some of those questions for yourself. Be honest. Take your time. There's no rush to, to know right away. But there's a wall for a reason, and I'm curious why. And things don't just get thrown up willy-nilly. Maybe just be a little curious about it. Take your time. Figure it out. And that will help you understand because if it's, oh, well, they did this, that, or the other, or last time I let them in, this happened, then it's important to communicate. We can say to them, hey, it's hard for me to have these conversations because whenever I do tell you how I'm feeling, then you use that against me later. So it makes it hard for me to want to open up. Now, does it mean that they're going to change? No, we can't control other people, but we can put up a healthy boundary and say, you know, if you continue to treat me that way, I'm not going to be able to see you as often or talk to you as much. They might get mad and not understand, but that's just more revealing. We can say, you know, I'm going to let you go. I can tell you're upset. I don't like talking to you when you're like this. Another boundary. I know you just cringed. I know it feels really uncomfortable. Work with the therapist on this and take your time. But trust me when I tell you that you deserve better. You deserve there, you know, to have healthy relationships that don't need these walls, but we have them for a reason. They don't just exist on their own for no reason at all. So let's figure out what that reason is. Okay, now there was another add on. It said, also on this thread, do you suggest trying to speak to your parents about this? For example, if they think they did a great job raising you and are not at all aware of the issues that I'm trying to manage as a result of their neglect and parentification, etc. Mm. If if you think it's safe for you, and this might change over time, there's no rush because not all parents are open to it. That doesn't mean that yours won't be. I'm always hopeful. Let's always be hopeful for the best outcome, but prepare ourselves for the worst, right? So what would it, you could journal about it, talk to your therapist, like what could we say to them? You know your parents, be honest with yourself. Do you think that that would go over well? Do you think you're able to do it? It could be something done in therapy to ensure that it's done healthily and safely. Um, but I want to make sure also physical safety and emotional safety. If you live with them and you think it could be dangerous for you or abusive, let's not yet. 
until we can remove ourselves um, or if we think they're going to be emotionally abusive as a result, you know, consider, but I don't think you have to talk to them about it, but we can if we think it could be helpful and if we think that they could actually have a conversation about it. Because for instance, even my own mom sometimes will admit, she's like, you know, I realize like I've put my own anxieties on you and I'm sorry for that. I mean, she's in therapy too. So there are these revelations and we can have real conversations about things like guilt that she has, things she wishes she didn't do, things that I'm harmed by because nobody's perfect, right? But you can't always do that unless they're doing their own work. So be honest with yourself. I think it can be helpful, but it's not necessary, okay? And with that, let's move on to question number five. And this question says, I have a question regarding why I find it so difficult to make decisions. I can support others to make decisions or make simple decisions on behalf of others with no issue. But as soon as it's for myself, I have this internal battle. I'm going to stop right there and tell you guys, I think it has to do with boundaries and people pleasing, but let's hear more. Anytime I have to make a decision, even simple decisions, such as deciding where to eat out, I try to avoid it whenever possible. My anxiety increases and I feel like the responsibility and blame falls on me if I make the wrong decision. This is beginning to impact my life and impacting my ability to continue to grow in life as inevitably there are lots of life decisions that you have to make as an adult. What is the cause of this and how can I work to improve it? Thank you, Katie. Okay. I said people pleasing because when we're worried we're going to make the wrong decision on a restaurant, right? What's the worst that happens that people don't like it and we decide not to eat there again? You know, I mean, sometimes it helps to play it out. You're like, is it really that could it be that bad? What What's the worst that could happen? If that seems like too much, I'm curious about maybe abuse or blame you've received in the past for decisions you've made, maybe abuse in your past that makes you believe that you're not good enough. There's a lot of places this can come from. And the people pleasing really has to do with this like urge to have everybody like us, which I know you guys have heard me talk about in the past that I've struggled with over the years. And my therapist had told me it's probably more, and this took me a while to accept, but just hear me out. People pleasing is really just another form of manipulation because we want people to like us so that our anxiety goes down. I think that might apply to this person too. Just let that percolate, let you think about it for a little bit. So I think this is probably coming from a difficulty with boundaries. And the reason that I say that is because when we people please or when we think that we have to put other people first. That means we have no boundaries on it for ourselves. We put everybody ahead of us, right? There's no place for our own self-care. There's no place for us to say no. We can feel like we don't get to make decisions and we can prefer it because we want to please other people because they're first, we're second. And I would encourage you to dig into where this comes from. Like I said, it could be past abuse. It could be that we saw someone, like maybe a sibling or another parent or something, get blamed or shamed or abused because of a bad decision they made or making a decision without someone else. Um, I have questions about your upbringing. Like, do you have a parent who would always make the decisions? Like, how'd you get along with it when you were growing up? Did you never have any independence? Are we completely enmeshed in our family? Are there no boundaries so that people's emotions are our emotions, vice versa? Were we told boundaries are bad? Being independent is bad. Did we have like a helicopter parent? I'm just curious because it's coming from somewhere like that. Um, And the ways that we work to improve it is just starting small, like uh, making small decisions for yourself that wouldn't impact anybody else. So maybe um, 
Yikes, you said you, you, you support others to make decisions or making simple decisions on behalf of others with no issue, but as soon as it's for yourself. So I might encourage you to set a timer. Pick one kind of thing, like, um, I don't know, let's say you're ordering takeout. What are you going to order? Or you in a Starbucks drive through What are you going to order for yourself? And you have a minute or two max, set a timer. Let's say two minutes. I'll be kind of generous. Two minutes for you to figure it out. And make it somewhere that you've been before. If it's like a new menu, I know two minutes is not that long. But, and when that timer goes off, you have to make a decision for better or for worse. Sometimes we order things we don't like. Mistakes happen. I'm curious. And then the journaling part is like, if I don't choose the right thing, what am I worried is going to happen? Let's play it out. What's the worst case scenario? That I don't like it and maybe I go back and get something else or maybe I just eat a sandwich that's not my favorite or have a coffee that's a little too sweet or not sweet enough or whatever. And I move on with my day, right? What about that? You know, play that out. What's the best case scenario? I get something that I like that maybe I wouldn't have ordered before. Hmm. And what's the most likely scenario? That it's going to be just fine. We'll work through, right? Play that out. Give yourself some time. Anxiety loves to live in the unknown. So let's get to know it. Let's get to understand this. Where do you think this comes from for you? I named a lot of different places where it could have come from. And we can improve it in many ways. So we have to start small though. We can't just jump right in. It'll be overwhelming to our system. Um, so let's start with small decisions and set a timer and then just do it. And let me know how it feels. And you can start by imagining yourself doing it first if that feels a little bit better. We're gonna wanna have coping skills for when our anxiety starts to peak. So if that's a full body shake, if that's calling a friend, if that's, you know, I don't know, distracting with like a TV show or something, you know, find something that feels good and works for you, but we'll get you there, okay? And finally, question number six says, hey, Katie, I hope you're doing well. I am, I hope you're doing well. My question is on ways to mitigate self-harm. I use self-harm to cope with panic attacks related to trauma. I have PTSD and my therapist is aware of it. Both me and my therapist agree that working on the trauma that causes the self-harm is better than working on the behavior itself. I agree. So while she monitors it, we don't directly work on it. However, I'm a teenager and I live with and rely on my parents who are aware that I self-harm and have decided to do room searches. Did your therapist talk to, oh, your therapist needs to talk to them. You need to bring them into therapy. Okay. And means restriction without any professional guidance because of it. Ooh. Some of the things my parents have done to supposedly help me in the past without professional guidance have been deeply traumatizing. So I struggle to let them make decisions about my treatment and, and to trust them. Fair enough. For the time being, self-harm still serves its purpose and removing it altogether is extremely harmful because I feel like I can't express any emotion because I no longer have a way out if it gets intense. Totally understand. Typically, my actions are more damaging without the tools they removed rather than with, of course. I'll end up hurting myself without being fully aware, like hitting my head until I'm dizzy or I nearly pass out. While in the past, my parents have been instructed not to do this by my therapist. They don't typically listen when therapists set boundaries with them because they believe they, oh, goddamn. Hmm. They believe they should have the final say since I'm their daughter. I have a lot to say about that. I'm struggling to cope with this because this feels like a huge invasion of privacy. Of course it is, especially since they found tools hidden in four different places, all of which were not obvious. Wow, they really are digging in there. I know that I shouldn't self-harm, but I don't feel like it should be up to my parents to decide that. I agree. 
Do you agree with what they did? No, not at all. How do you think I should address this with my therapist or my parents? Any advice? Thanks so much. I know this is a weird situation. No. Parents, this is the reason that I, for the most part in my private practice, never saw non-adults. I even struggled with my adults that still lived at home. I had some patients in their early 20s that still live with their parents because then you're not just treating your patient, you're treating their parents too. And the parents can be the worst because they want to believe that nothing's wrong with their child and they often enable unhealthy behavior or cause more damage. In your case, there's a reason that you don't feel safe to express your emotions and you don't feel like you know how to do is because they think they know best. They've probably done this your whole life and it's incredibly infuriating to me. It's It's wrong and they need to come back into your therapy session and if your therapist is able, then you, your therapist needs to tell them that what they did was incorrect and why in a very therapeutic way. Don't worry, us therapists, we can hold it together. We can speak parent language. We can get them on our side. Be- them coming in not only is an invasion of privacy, but it's an invasion of your treatment and your process in treatment. They should go to therapy to find out what they can do best. They shouldn't assume they know best because I would assume they're kind of partially to blame with what you're struggling with now. So what makes, and that's, I mean, I already would assume just because of their overstep and their like aggressive, like helicoptery type behavior. Parents always think they know best and spoilers, they don't because um, we're all human and we're all, you know, none of us are infallible or we all have our issues. So I don't agree. I think it's wrong. I I would encourage you to try impulse logs. I don't know if your therapist has had you do those, but I, I have... Um, I talk about them in my book, Traumatized. I don't know if you have that, but I walk you through how to do them. They also, there's a, it's not the best video, but it explains how to use them at selfinjury.com forward slash impulse log. I think they have videos on their website on selfinjury.com. I would encourage you to check that out and use those because I want you, while there's nothing wrong with you self-injuring, and I agree, we should be working on the trauma and not taking that coping skill away because we haven't replaced it, right? I do want you to try to put some space between you reacting and using it and, you know, the the trigger and you doing it. Essentially, we're trying to create a little space and the impulse logs can help with that. Does it mean you can't self-injure? No, it's just trying to find, we need to start trying other coping skills to see what works and doesn't. No judgment around whether you self-injure or not after using the impulse log, but I just want to try to slow that reaction time down, if that makes sense. So I would do that. Um, I wouldn't address it with your therapist or with your parents yourself. I would make your therapist do it. And I don't say make your therapist do it, but like bring them into session and have your therapist there and talk to your therapist about this so that you can put together what to say because it's not okay. Um, and your therapist can hold her, his or her own and help explain why it's not and why them doing that is actually more hurtful. And they can, might keep like pushing back with your therapist. Um, I don't know how old you are. You said you're still a teen, right? So you live at home, I think. Yeah, a teenager. I mean, as soon as you can get out of there. But yeah, let's let's try. Try to bring them back into therapy and have your therapist kindly push them in the direction of explain why what they did was not good. Okay. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Thank you for all your support. Thanks for sharing this podcast. Um, I love you all. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week and I'll see you next time.